The following is a podcast of 19 North, a college and 20-something ministry of Victory Family Church. For more details, visit www.19north.tv. Well, guys, it's such a joy to be with you guys tonight, really. uh, It's just, uh, I mean, God's doing some amazing things in your lives, and it's just just really an honor to be a part of it. And uh, Zach and Lauren, of course, he called me. Talked to him this afternoon. He said, could you, or yesterday, I think, he said, could you do the service for me? I think we're going to have a baby right about that time. So I said, no, that'd, that'd be thrilled. I love coming to be with you guys. I want to talk to you tonight about the mercy of God. Um, it's the part of God's character and nature that religion ignores. Um, religion, when I define religion, I want to be clear. Uh, I'm talking about people who try to make themselves right with God with a self-righteousness, whether it's through their religious observances, uh, religious sacraments, uh, church membership, attendance, uh, good works, and all of those things are fine, but none of those things are what make God good. God's good. It's why we should serve him and walk with him. And what religion will do is it will invert that. It will tell you that God's mercy is conditioned on your goodness. When the reality of it is, God's mercy is, is there and it's everlasting. And it's what we should understand about his person. Uh, you know, the Bible tells us we're to know God intimately. Uh, in fact, the word know in the Bible, it's often used uh, in a very intimate way. And Adam knew Eve and she conceived. So when God says he wants us to know him, he doesn't want it to be casual. Uh, like if I were to meet one of you tonight for the very first time, I'm John and you're whoever and you're Bob or whoever, and somebody say, hey, do you know Bob? I'd say, yeah, we just met. I know Bob. Well, that's not a real close and intimate relationship. In fact, it's, it's very superficial. But if you were to ask me if I know my wife, I would tell you, well, we've been married 24 years and uh, we have three kids. And so we've had an intimacy that produced life. And so when you know God, it should be an intimacy that produces life. And when you don't know who he is, and you don't know what he'll do, then you don't know him. And religion is, is cast God in such an, uh, an uh, basic, almost an evil light to where people will think, you know, if somebody's in a car accident, you know, well, God, you know, God used it to teach them. You know, that's a lot of nonsense. If God's, you know, the Bible tells us to imitate God as dear children. So if God's cutting people's brakes to give them insight, then it would be fine for us to go out in the parking lot tonight to cut yours. I mean, if God does it, I mean, really, if God's causing these kind of things, we should imitate it. But if you do that here, they put you in prison. But religion casts God in a very, very, very horrible light. Mercy defined is God's desire and his willingness and his ability to treat you better than you deserve. Guys, I can't tell you how important that is. God's mercy is his desire and his ability and his willingness to treat you better than you deserve. Let me illustrate mercy to you. See, most people expect judgment from God. When Now, sure, there's judgment in God. He's a judge. But do you understand that Jesus bore that judgment for you? That Jesus took the punishment that was due me and you, and he bore it on the cross. I guess about 20-some years ago, some of you may not have been on the planet yet, but uh, I was speaking at a church 
in eastern North Carolina. And a good friend of mine, my parents kind of helped raise him. He was a doctor there. He had finished med school and went through residency, had a ton of school loans that the government subsidized. And to pay back his government loans, he had to, I think, take four to six years and go to like a remote part of the country that had little or, or minimal medical care and work at a clinic. So he was in this real little town in eastern North Carolina. And I mean, it was just a, what, I don't even think it had a red light. And he ran this little clinic. So he was the guy that you went to see no matter what you had. If you had a hangnail or a heart attack, he's the guy they called. And so, you know, I would stay at his house with his wife. And at that time, his son was just about four or five years old. And I'd sleep out on their couch. And I was speaking at his church in this little town. Well, about one or two in the morning, I just hear a series of gunshots. And they're very close. I mean, just like five, six in a row. And then 10, 20 seconds. Then another five or six then another 20, and then, I mean, over and over and over again, it startled me so much that I just felt so, so ill at ease. I, I got up and I got dressed. I just thought, I don't know why I just did. It just seemed like the right thing to do. It just, it was so odd. Well, the, right about that time, the phone rang. And, uh, and he's, the, of course, the only doctor in town. And they called him, and then he came out, and he, and he got a hold of me. And he said, John, and he saw me already dressed. He said, what are you doing? He said, did, you know, did you ever go to bed? I said, well, I did. I heard these gunshots. He said, well, what evidently happened, uh, there's been a double homicide. And, uh, and I've got to go. And uh, I want you to come with me. I said, I, I don't want to come with you, but, but I will. So uh, off we went. Well, we stopped off at his office first. In his office, um, he, he, he went to get some of the paperwork he would need. Because my first thought to him was, I said, man, someone better call a coroner. He said, that's me. I'm the coroner, too. And he literally was going to his office to get the book to find out what to do in a case like this. And so when we walked into his office, there was glass everywhere. One of the places the guy had taken a shotgun and shot was the window right where he sits. He had, he had just literally, would have, he would have been sitting there. It, would have, it was one or two in the morning. It would have killed him. And so it kind of startled him. He's like, man, was the guy trying to, was he thinking of me? And it was kind of, you know, unnerving. So now we leave and we go to the, to the site of the murder. And we go into this house. And what happened was this guy had gotten stoned and he thought he was Rambo. And he went and he strapped all kind of different guns on him. He went back to his cousin's house and shot his cousin's girlfriend with a shotgun. Now, guys, I mean, I've, I've never seen anything like this. Don't want to again. But it, what that does to a human body is unbelievable. And it's almost like you don't think you're watching, seeing what you're seeing. And literally, this poor girl was all over the wall behind her. It was horrible. One of the horrible things I've ever seen in my life. We went out into the yard where they brought him, and he was checking to see if they're alive. And, of course, they were dead. He chased his cousin down, and I don't know, shot him eight or ten times. And he's laying there face down dead. And it was just surreal and weird, and you felt just... It was just a horrible feeling. Well, Sam said to me, and we were kind of like, you know, we grew up in a sense. My parents kind of helped raise him in a sense. And so he's almost like a brother to me. He said, let's go to the police station. They have him there. I want to ask him before they take him away if he had anything against my family. Because, you know, maybe another one of these family members are going to come finish the job. He said, I just want to find out before they take him away. So we go into the jailhouse. That's, That's probably 
an extreme way of saying it. It was a room. They didn't have a jail. And here's this guy just standing with the handcuffs on by a desk. And the room was full of people. Now, when you scanned around that room, you could feel the hatred in that room. There are family members in the room. I mean, people are so angry. They're seething mad. I mean, I have to tell you personally, I I, I didn't hate the guy, but I was so disgusted to be in his presence, to be in the presence of someone who could just cold-bloodedly kill two people like that. And he's standing there like he just had a cup of coffee. You could feel this, this in the room. It was tangible. Until I looked around and I saw two people there. And these two people didn't have the same feeling or look in their face. There was a brokenness in them. And all I could see them do was stare at this kid. The kid, he was really, I was his age at that time. In fact, I was probably at that time I was about 25 myself. And, uh, and it was his mom and dad. And his mom and dad were in that room, and they were the only two people in that room who looked at that boy and wanted him to receive better than he deserved. Everybody else wanted judgment for him, me included. And, of course, he went to court and to trial and to prison, but mom and dad wanted mercy for their son. No matter what he did, they loved him, and they wanted him to be treated better than they deserved. What most people see God like are like those of us who are in the room, like me. But really what he's like is the mom and the dad who desire, he desires to have mercy upon people. See, mercy is better defined when you, when you see it in action rather than just words. Jesus demonstrated mercy constantly, and oh, did it tick the religious people off. I mean, they hated him. They, they, tried, they, killed him. they sought to kill him and ultimately uh, uh, brought him to his death because of their hatred. I mean, these were... Religion is so evil, it will cause people to do horrible things in the name of God. Because what it, in, what, what it bottom line will do is to make you responsible to make God love you. And people will do anything to make that happen, even evil things. And uh, yet Jesus constantly was doing things to, well, to tick off religious people. He was kind to sin-stained people. You won't find one record of Jesus being harsh to a broken person or a sinner or a person even in, in the depths of sin. But I'll tell you, self-righteous people, he was ruthless. He, he, I mean, he called them names, called them, uh, he, he berated them, he called them what they were in actuality. One time he drove them out of the temple with a whip. Now you have to understand, Jesus was a carpenter for the first 30 years of his life and there weren't any power tools. So he was, you know, obviously he was ripped. I mean, he was. He was 30 years old. He's been working with his hands. And, and he's, he's a carpenter. I mean, I, I see people with this religious Jesus driving people out of the temple with a whip going, leave, please. Please. Pretty, please. He drove them out. I mean, it's not the Jesus people see. But it's the one in the Bible. And yet when he was with broken people, there was a woman taken in the act of adultery in the Gospel of John. I wish I had time to give you the the context. But again, the religious people, fine night of religious work, went out and, and, and wanted to trap Jesus in an impossible situation. So they found somebody to some because what happened, they, they caught this woman in the act of adultery. That means caught her having sex with a married person. Can I ask you a question? 
you got to be looking. When's the last time you caught somebody in the act of adultery? <laughs> They're peeping. Now, last time I checked, adultery takes two people. Correct? There's only a woman. It was obviously some kind of setup, and likely this is probably a prostitute. And they could care less about this woman. In the morning, Jesus is teaching. They drag her out of a bed of adultery and throw her before Jesus. She's probably not clothed properly. She's shamed. Throw her down before Jesus and said, this woman was taken and caught in the very act of adultery. The law of God says that she should be stoned to death. What do you say? You know the story. He knelt down and he wrote in the ground and ignored them. They continued asking. Finally, he said, whoever's without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And then the, and we'll pick it up in, in John chapter uh, 8, verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older fir- ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there alone. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Isn't it interesting? This woman didn't come for forgiveness. She didn't expect to go to the meeting. She was drugged there out of a bed of adultery. And the religious people wanted her condemned. And Jesus ultimately said, all right, any of you that are without sin, stone her. And they all left. Now, he was the only one left with her because he's the only one qualified to stone her. He's the only one without sin. And he says something very interesting. He said, where are all those people, woman, that have accused you? She said, they're gone. And then he said something amazing. And this ticks religious people off because he was kind and merciful to her. He said, well, guess, you know, I, I, don't, I won't condemn you either. This is the son of God with a woman who just committed adultery listen, and wasn't asking for forgiveness. She didn't come to that meeting to find Jesus. She was drugged there. And then he said something amazing. Now go and leave your life of sin. Most people have that backwards. If you'll leave your life of sin, God will have compassion and mercy on you. And it's the other way around. You will never be able to walk free from the powers and dictates of sin until you understand the mercy of God is what empowers you to do that. Jesus told her to go do something that one day before would have been impossible for her. But, the, the, but her understanding that kind of love, you understand her expectation of what she was getting from Jesus was not very good. She was not expecting kindness. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, I've been pastoring this church for, uh, this fall will be 19 years. And... Uh, in 19 years, I've never had one person that we would say, quote, in sin, uh, adultery. Well, you name the list. Not one of those people have ever, ever came up to me after a service and been angry. They've never written me unkind letters. But I've had two death threats through the years, and they were both from Christians. And it was filled with scriptures before they said they were going to kill me. <laughs> and you know why? Because we used to be on television we broadcast our service on uh, Channel 22. I don't know what it's called now. Uh, and I talked about how God loves people. It doesn't matter what they do or how they do it. He, wants to lo- he loves people, and no one's exempt from the love of God, and it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. And, so, and, I, I, and I talked about how God loves people 
who are, it doesn't matter what, what they're struggling with. It doesn't matter what they're doing. He's for them and he wants to set them free. And I named a, a, a group of people and one of, of such group I mentioned homosexuals that God loves people. He doesn't, he doesn't care how they got there, why they're that way, who got them. He doesn't care about all the debates. He loves the person. And he wants to move in their life and set them free because he loves them. Not because he wants to change somebody, but because he loves somebody. And, uh, and, and I got death threats because of things like that. And uh, you can't imagine how many times through the years, I can see them when they're coming. They're, they're, um, uh, they have like a, this religious scowl on their face. Because I always hang out in the back in the cafe area after the services and just greet people as long as uh, they'll stick around. And, and they always come with this kind of look like, <laughs> and I could see them coming. And it used to bother me when I was starting out because I thought, oh, my goodness, they're upset. Now I get a kick out of it. Because I don't, I know, I, I don't, I know the, the, I don't know exactly what they're going to say, but I know in generalities what it's going to be. It's going to be something that makes them unhappy about somebody else. They never are unhappy about themselves. It's always something else. And you can't, I can't tell you how many times they'll come in. If you've walked through our building, you notice it's probably not your typical church building. Is that fair to say? With children's rooms, with a soft play and sky tubes and a youth center with, you know, it's just. It's just not typical. So uh, they come up to me and have a look on their face. Can I ask you something? I go, sure, you know. Sure, what do you, what do you want to know? Can I ask you, uh, I came into this church and it, by God, I thought I was in Disney World. I said, well, uh, okay, well, that's good. I said, can I get you some coffee or something, you know. And uh, I don't know why, I don't know why it has to be this way. I don't know why you have to have these places built for kids. They should just come to the house of God because they love God. And I said, well, how'd that work out for you? <laughs> no, the reality is I look at, now I used to kind of be a little bit more timid, but you know the older you get, you lose your filter. <laughs> you know, you ever met somebody 85 years old? They'll look at you and go, by God, you're fat. <laughs> I'm serious. Old people tell you anything. Don't ask old people questions. Old people tell you the truth. And so, uh, and so I just ask, I just tell people real honestly, I say, now listen, I, I know you're welcome to your opinion. But I, I, let, can I tell you the truth? I'm going to tell you the best to know how. You, can I tell Sure, I'd like to know. I said, now listen, I, wanna, I give you my word. Now listen to me. As long as I live, the longest day I live, not for 30 seconds, not for five seconds, not for a nanosecond. Will I ever care what you think? I don't care what you think. I don't care what you think. I don't care what you think at all. Do you understand me? And they give you the look, you know. I said, because Jesus said, suffer the little children and permit them to come to me. And woe to the person that doesn't let that happen. It'd be better for you to hang yourself. Jesus said that. I said, so I'll tell you what, when I see him and you see him, you explain your attitude, I'll explain mine. I feel better about mine. <laughs> and so I can't tell you. See, my intent with religious people, meaning self-righteous people, I want to tick them off. No, I do. Because I'm not, I, I, I will not give my life to pacify people that will not do the will of God and love people. If they're going to come and want to... 
You want to you want to build a hate club? Go do be a Nazi. Don't ask me to be involved in that. People need help. Now, God doesn't look at sin and say, well, your sin's okay," And let's pretend I don't mean that. But he starts with mercy, not with changing you. God, he catches a fish before he ever tries to clean it. And what religion will tell you is get cleaned up and God will love you and God will have mercy on you. It's just the opposite. Because Romans tells us it is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. It's his goodness that does it. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us to do something that's incredible. You see, because God's mercy is a never-ending door to the resources of heaven. In Hebrews 4.16, he said, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. He said, come boldly to the throne of grace, not timidly, not, oh God, I hope you love me. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Grace is favor, unmerited or unearned. And the first thing he tells you to obtain is mercy. He said, you're not going to come to God and find grace to help you in your time of need unless you believe he wants to treat you better than you deserve. Mercy is God's desire to treat you better than you deserve. Listen to me. No matter what you're facing, no matter what you've done wrong, no matter how long you've done it, God wants to treat you better than you deserve. And it is that goodness that will lead you to repentance. And when you understand he wants to treat you better than you deserve, you come boldly to his throne to obtain mercy and to find grace to help in a time of need. But most people, when they're in trouble, the first thing they do when they come to God is, oh God, I come, I'm so sorry, I, 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 Lord, I, 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 I know you have billions of people, I don't want to bother you, but Lord, I love, I love you, and I, I'm sorry, and I promise I'll give more, and I'll go to church more, and, and I won't go to that club anymore, I promise, Lord, and that girl, I, I won't look anymore, I promise. And you give all your, and thinking that if you do all your stuff, that God finally gets the scowl off of his face. All right, what? That's how most people see God. And it is so unbiblical. The first thing you must obtain in the presence of God is an understanding. He wants to treat you better than you deserve all the time. Now, people will say this to me. They'll say, it's that kind of preaching that just people will just do whatever they want. Let me tell you just a little bit about my life and, and then a couple more things and, we'll, uh, and I'll be done. When I was in my uh, teens, I gave my life to the Lord. And my mom uh, brought me to churches like this one. And I thought people, I'll be honest with you, I got to tell you, this kind of worship, I thought y'all were crazy. No, really, maybe some of you, the first time you came and people were like, oh, I love you, Jesus. I was like, oh, God, what's wrong with these people? They scared me. And uh, long story short, I gave my life to the Lord. I was about 16. But I didn't know anything about the Bible. I didn't have any Christian friends. I didn't have a 19 North. And by the way, religious people don't like 19 North. I don't know why the young people need their own time together. Because they don't want to be around you. And, uh, no, really, there are people get, they're ticked. Well, why the, what's the smoke in the room for, Alice? <laughs> Now, people, people get worked up because of the haze. They're like, I don't know why you need haze in the room, so we don't have to look at you. <laughs> Just have fun, but anyway. Well, I eventually, you know, gave my life to the Lord, but I really didn't walk with God. I didn't know how. And I, I you know, and I was, I was smoking things you shouldn't smoke and, and sniffing things 
other than air and uh, <laughs> taking pills, not aspirin. And, and I was, you know, in college and I was living about as immoral a life as you can live. And, uh, and my mom, of course, she's a Christian. She's trying to tell me, you know, oh, you got to walk with Jesus still, honey. And I'm like, finally, I said, listen, don't ever talk to me about Jesus again. I'm done. Leave me alone. Do I, my clear mom, do you understand? Leave me alone with the Jesus stuff. Okay? All right, honey. And of course, she lied. And so <laughs> I come home from school for a summer, and my mom, this is great. It's a Saturday night. Would you like to go to the Sunday school picnic in the morning? I went, oh, gee, yeah. Woo-hoo. How many of you would like to go to the Sunday school picnic in the morning? I can't wait, Mommy. Let's go. Will Mr. Rogers be there, too? You know, I'm just like, oh, great. But my mother, my mother's smart. She's, and I'm Italian. And I love food. She said, honey, this isn't a manja cake picnic. Do you know what a manja cake is? Manja means eat cake. Cake eaters. Um, cake eaters. Um, non-ethnic eating food, people. Cake, if you have bread and jelly at dinner at night on the table, you're a manja cake. Okay, you know, white bread and jelly. Oh, would you like to? I was at a manja cake's house one time. And they had bread and jelly on the table. It was like dinner time. Would you like some bread and jelly? I went, no. Why would you do that to your body when you could have real food? And so, so she told me, she said, and everybody in this church, they really, it, was like, it really was like an Italian church. And uh, everyone's last name had a vowel at the end. And she said, no. All, and she told me the cooks, and I knew these old ladies. And she said, they're bringing... A bra- brajol. And, you know, anybody have, ever have brajol? Change your life. You'll see angels when you eat this. Cavatel, and there'll be lasagna and eggplant parmesan. And I was like, oh, love the picnic. Because manja cake picnics, you have hot dogs, hamburgers, and whatever. Cantaloupe or something. This was real. You go there, and they all had roasters plugged in. Awesome. Telling you. You, you, those of you who go to Eaton Park tonight, get home at 2 in the morning, you would get up for this. I'm telling you. So I said, yeah, I'll go to that. But I'm thinking, I'll, I'll go, I'll eat and I'll leave. So I eat and I'm ready to go. And my mother comes over. She goes, I'd like you to meet the pastor. And I'm like, oh, great. Got to meet some idiot preacher. I'm serious. That's how I felt, you know. So she introduces me to the guy and then she leaves. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to get her off my back. I'm going to embarrass her. I'm going I'm to blow this guy out of the water, and this is going to be over. So I just, I mean, I unload. I, this guy's nice to me. He said, hello, and I just unload on him. I said, you know what? I said, listen, I love my mom, but she's driving me nuts. Let me explain to you my life. I gave my life to the Lord when I was a teenager, but I'm done with all this. And I, now, I was kind of vague with you, the lifestyle I was living. I went into graphic detail with this guy. I spent about five minutes, and I told him stuff I did. And how often I did it. And I said, when I finished about five, eight, ten minutes of it, I said, listen, a couple months I'm going back to school. I'm going to do it all over again. And I like it. I have no intention of changing. Okay? He looked me right in the eyes and he just had this kind compassion about him. He just said, uh, you, you just have no idea how much God loves you, do you? And I thought, I said, did you hear what I said? And I repeated some of my stuff. I said, did you not hear what I told you about my life? God doesn't love me. Did you hear what I just told you? And again, he just said, 
goes, gosh, he goes, you know, I'm just so sorry. You, you have no idea how much God loves you, do you? He said, but you know, it's been so nice meeting you. And he shook my hand and walked away. <laughs> That's all I could do. I was like, is the guy crazy? He couldn't hear me. You know, I went back to college. And listen, I didn't pick up a Bible. I wasn't with a Christian. Nobody said a word to me about God for months. But every time I'd go to a party, I'd get stoned and live very immorally. I'd come back to my room where I was staying. be one, two, three, four in the morning, whatever it was. Because, you know, if you've been to college and stupid like I was, your weekend started Thursday night. And then you basically tried to wake up on Monday. Hopefully none of you have gone stupid like I did, but I was on steroids stupid. So I would go, you know, out party and come back. Two, three in the morning, I'd be in that room, and, and I, it, I now know it was God's presence, but at the time, I, it made me so mad. I, I remember screaming to God, leave me alone. Why are you bothering me? And I could not get those words out of my heart because they weren't words of a man. They were words from God that the Father loves you. And that it was like a fire in my soul. He loves me. How can it be? How can he love me? That preacher said he loved And it was with me all day. And I was so angry at him. I just, I hate, well, I don't want to think this. And you, you ever have a thought and you go, Ugh. I'm walking down a sidewalk and I'll go, Ugh. people probably thought, you know, ooh, okay. <laughs> About three months of that. And I remember, I mean, just one night, just stoned or whatever. I remember finally just kneeling down saying, I, I'm so sorry. And I, and I gave my heart back to God. Because of a sentence. Someone told one truth about God will change your life. I'm so glad I didn't meet some religious person who thought their job was to make me know how messed up I was. Can I tell you something when you're messed up? You don't need anyone to tell you. I don't need a preacher to tell me that I'm messed up. I can look in a mirror and I could have seen that. He told me about God. I already knew about me. See, it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. It was the goodness of God that gave Jesus the confidence to know that when he told a woman who had just committed adultery to leave your life of sin, that the goodness of God would empower her to live that way. And a year from that point, a little over a year and plus, I was in Bible school, following the call of God on my life. All because somebody was willing to tell me the truth about God. And I can tell you this through the years, religious people get so angry at that simple message of how good God is. And it's so sad. Ephesians 2 and verse 4 says this. I'm going to skip a couple uh, uh, the, the, the verse on Esther, guys. Ephesians 2, 4 said, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Would you say this out loud? God is rich in mercy. He is rich in his ability, his desire, and his willingness to treat you better than you deserve. Let me illustrate it this way and we'll wind it down. Anybody have a checking account? Okay, you're at a stage in life when that checking account is usually kind of tight. You ever had a time when you just pray the service charge isn't coming? Am I the only one that was ever there? I mean, particularly when I was young and you're just thinking, dear Jesus, I hope I'm doing this checkbook well because if not, things are bouncing like beach balls everywhere, right? If 
most people, now let me say it this way. If so you went to somebody's checkbook and they were like a college student's checkbook, and that's how people see God's mercy. Let's think of God's mercy being a checkbook balance. Most people see God when they come to him in the red, angry. A deficit of a, of a desire to treat you better than you deserve. And so what do they do? They try to merit, earn, or through penance, gain the mercy of God. God, I promise you that if you'll do this for me, I'll never, you fill in the blank. And because they don't believe he's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. What if you went up to somebody that had $500 in their checkbook and you had a need in your life? Well, $500 is is okay amount of money, but you can't live off of it. Not long. And so that's how a lot of people see God's mercy. Enough to maybe get me through something this big, but I mean, something gets much bigger than that. It's gone. Or some people might see it like $100,000. That's a lot of money, but you won't be able to live the rest of your life off of it. So I could try. No, you won't. Not a hundred grand, you won't. And what about a million? Well, people have lost a million before. What about a billion? People have lost a billion before. What about a trillion? Our government just lost that. (laughs) We did a stimulus. We lost a trillion dollars. I guess the next thing from a trillion is a is quadrillion. Please don't tell Congress there's a quadrillion. <laughs> Bless their heart. All these people are talking on television. It's like, it's really simple. No spend the more you make it. No spend the more you make it, and you're going to make it nice and nice and longer term. Because <laughs> I'm going to tell you, you want to know a cigarette? It's a secret. Just between you and me, a cigarette? You're going to pay for all of this. You're going to be the ones that pay. No, me. I'm going to be old and going to Florida or something. <laughs> All this trillion dollar debt stuff is coming your way. So you better think. Just anyway, God bless you. Um, <laughs> thanks for paying it. Um, talk about a crime. That's another story. But what is in God's checkbook regarding mercy if he's rich in mercy? Look what Psalms 136 says, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures how long? Forever. It's inexhaustible. In fact, in Psalms 136, there are 26 verses, and 26 times it says his mercy endures forever. It's not because God was, you know, giving the scripture, and he said, okay, what can I say here? Oh, his mercy endures forever. Then the next verse, I need something, a good tagline. His mercy endures forever. 26 times in a row, he said, listen, my desire to treat you better than you deserve is inexhaustible. It it endures forever. And when you begin to understand that, it draws you to God. Instead of, because the minute you don't believe God wants to treat you better than you deserve, I don't care who you are, it drives you away from God. And, and, And religion will tell you what you have to do. To make yourself right with God. Now let me say this to qualify. There is a responsibility as a Christian to yield to the goodness of God and let him him help you grow and develop. Let me tell you this as well. When you're a leader in the body of Christ, you learn to love people enough that you lay some things aside that aren't necessarily right or wrong. But because you love people, you just lay some things aside. There's certain things I've chosen to lay aside with my life and it has nothing to do with God's will. 
That is my relationship with the Lord. But it has everything to do with my ability and willingness and desire to treat and love people well and to lead people well. And, and let, me, let me just take a side journey here. Uh, uh, it, it's worth the time because I want to give you context. I, for example, I don't drink alcohol in any form. It's not wrong if you do. It's not a sin to drink wine or have a beer. Now, the Bible does say strong drink is wrong because obviously you, you'll go stupid real quick. But it's not wrong to have a beer. In fact, if you're going to have a beer or a Coke, you're probably better off with a beer. I mean, health-wise, okay? So I'm not talking about wrong and right. But as a pastor, I've buried um, a lot of kids because of alcohol. I don't know if you've ever, ever had to do that. Stood over the casket of a 16-year-old or a 50-year-old who was killed by a drunk driver. Uh, we have an addiction recovery group here that literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people have gone through the last 10, 12 years. And I've made a decision not to let that in my life because no good has ever come from it, ever. Let me ask you all a question. So I'm trying to show you the difference between mercy from God and wisdom. See, this is where people take mercy and say, hey, you can do whatever you want and God loves you. Yes, he does. But you still go stupid, ruin your life. Let me ask you a question. How many of you know somebody that's dead because of alcohol? Raise your hand. How many of you know of a marriage that's dissolved because of alcohol? Somebody that's been physically abused because of alcohol. Is there anybody here that doesn't know anybody ever in your life that's been damaged? I mean, you've, your whole life you've never heard of anybody's life gone bad because of alcohol. Anybody here that you might be, you, you don't know anybody ever that's had their life messed up because of alcohol. Anybody. Is there anyone here that you say, no, I don't know any. I think it's great. Never, never seen it ever. Heard anybody. Okay. We've all heard it and seen it and felt it. M- many of you in your own homes. So let me ask you a question. What if, what if that was never in someone's life? What if a person made the decision, not because God loves them and doesn't, not because it's right or wrong, but because they had wisdom. See, what I, my heart's desire for you, because this, this nation, this world, the church rests on you, not on my, my age people, your age. Every revolution in the world has been started by people your age, not my age. We're too old and tired to do revolution. You guys are the, are the catalyst for change in this world. You really are. And I want you to know what it means to have mercy from God and to love God and to walk with God with all your heart. But I also want you to know what it means to have wisdom. To know what to say yes to and what to say no to. Not because God's not going to love you, but because he has a plan for your life. He doesn't want you just tied up to things that are going to, they're going to choke this out of you and choke that out of you. Now, you may not need to make the kind of decisions I've made with my life. But can I tell you this? I can't live with the fact of an alcoholic watching their pastor have a beer who thinks now it's no big deal, and then they don't have, and then they go get, and then they get their marriage messed, or they wrap themselves around a tree. And their thought was, Pastor John can do it. I mean, it's not no big deal. If he can do it, I can do it. So I can tell you this. It's no big deal. It's not wrong. I'm telling you, listen, don't, don't mishear me. It's not wrong to have a beer. God could care less. Except people die because of it. When it gets past this far, and I've just seen people go too far. So I want you to know the difference between wisdom and righteousness.
okay? I want you to make great decisions. I want you to have the best life you can. I don't want you to get tied up into silly, nonsensical things that can diminish the scope of your life, the vision of your life. There's enough power in this room by the power of God in you and the individual lives in this room and the gifts in this room that you can change the world. Jesus had a handful of 12. I'm telling you, you guys are making a difference in the lives of people. You're making a difference and you're, going, you're setting yourself up for decisions that are incredible. But it doesn't begin with you trying to make these wisdom decisions to make God have, you mercy, have mercy on you. But when you have mercy from God, it, it just makes it easy. And you can make the kind of choices and decisions that can turn everything around. This is Zach Blair. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I truly hope that the message that we shared deeply impacted your life today. But there is one more thing that I'd like to challenge you in. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity into the hearts of each man. So I know right now that there are those listening to this podcast right now under the sound of my voice that have eternity in their hearts and don't know what would happen to them when they die. Jesus said plainly in John 6, 47, he said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Do you know if you've ever put your faith and your trust completely and solely in him? Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. But the great thing about this salvation is that it doesn't just affect us in the life to come, that we don't have to just have hope at the end, that we can have hope now, that as we ask God into our heart, we ask him into our world as well, and it changes everything right now as well as in the future. So if you would like to know if Jesus is your Lord, you can pray this prayer with me and Jesus will come into your heart. Just say, Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus and I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Son of God and that he was raised from the dead. Jesus, I receive you as my Lord right now. Come into my heart and make me brand new. I'm now a child of God. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast has been brought to you by 19 North. For more details, please visit www.19north.tv.